Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Geekening Podcast. I am Will, your occasional host here, and today I have a very special guest. Please introduce yourself. Hello, uh, I'm Jenin Lyons. I am the author of A Chorus of Dragons, a five-book epic fantasy series from Tor Books, the last book of which just came out. Um, and uh, I'm here to talk about it and all sorts of other things. Yeah. So, first very important question, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm doing good. Um, nice. I'm in the middle of uh, writing the next book, you know. It, yeah. it pretty much never stops. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Second question, you know, because yeah, the Geekening Podcast, we'd like to have fun. Some questions aren't that serious. Uh, sure. Why dragons? Hmm. <laughs> okay. So, a couple of reasons why dragons. One, Beauty and the Beast. When I was four years old, I thought Maleficent was the best thing ever. So, I pretty much never let go of that. Um, I don't, what did I say? You said Beauty and the Beast. Ah, Sleeping Beauty. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> um, Sleeping Beauty. Um, Two, um, I pretty much at a young age kind of started playing Dungeons and Dragons, um, but Dungeons and Dragons can't be blamed for it because I literally picked the game up because it had a dragon on the cover. Um, <clears throat> so I think it was already pretty much established by that. Uh, also because I grew up in, um, a uh, an Assyrian household, and um, as such, very very big on um, a lot of the uh, older Mediterranean um, mythologies. Um, pretty much grew up on Marduk and Tiamat, so Tiamat. Um, yeah, there's a lot of reasons, <laughs> and plus. I think everyone can just have a consensus. No one disagrees on this. Dragons are just cool. <laughs> dragons are just cool. Yes, that is also true. And it, on, on the topic of dragons, it is so cool to see like how different areas of the world have their interpretations of dragons. It is. It is very interesting. Um, very, uh, their responses to very different uh, cultural pressures and um, Certainly, uh, my dragons are my dragons um, are very European yeah. um, in in basic or Middle Eastern. Um, but the point is, they are not um, the more I don't want to say benign because Asian dragons are still forces of nature and yeah, they can um, be destructive. But uh, definitely not that sense of these are these are. Um, part of the natural world right and with the chinese dragons i think you the word you're looking for is like more revered because like japanese dragons or asian dragons are like seen as like very noble creatures that you respect well i mean they're they're usually part of the divine hierarchy right they are yeah no absolutely um that is a that is a very different um and I, I very much like, just wasn't the kind of dragon I needed for my story. Right. Um, you know, a very different take on the role of dragons in society and culture. Yeah. It's a cool one. So in case um, someone has never heard of your book series, uh, what is it about? Well, um, I mean, I can really, really, uh, easily and inaccurately sum it up as uh, <laughs> it it was my uh, subversion of the chosen one story um i wanted to you know uh, uh tell a tale in which um the world tries to move push forward the um the typical chosen one narrative uh, only you you know there's prophecies only this one uh, one man, one person uh, can save everything and then just flip all of that 
up over on its head. Um, but I mean, it's it's a uh, it's really about a uh, a man you know who starts off fairly young, who um, finds out that he is um, prophesized to not save everything but destroy everything, uh, and he doesn't want to. <laughs> so so how he deals with that destiny is um, is a lot of what the book is about or books are about. So in your series, I'm assuming we would, if we did pick it up and read it, we would see if his destiny is set in stone or malleable. Right, right. Although I will, I will spoiler something right off the bat, which is I don't like determinism. Hmm. So <laughs> you can pretty much make a bet on which way that's going to go. Right, right. But uh, what inspired you to become a writer? Uh, my first husband dared me. <laughs> I swear to God, my first husband <laughs> dared me. Um, so, so, so I was, I was, um, I was that geek that was always like writing, you know, fifty-page backstories for my characters in various tabletop RPGs. Um, and one time, in just like a I don't know if he was frustrated with me or what, but he was just like, you turn that energy into writing a book. I dare you to turn that energy into writing a book. So I did. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I really enjoyed the process. Um, you know, uh, looking back, it was terrible. Oh God, it was so bad. Um, that's normal. <laughs> that's pretty normal. <laughs> First books are, are rarely works of art. Um, and uh, I decided to keep doing it, but honestly, it took another, you know, 15 years past that point for me to decide to actually really seriously write books. So, yeah. Uh, and with what you said about tabletop role-playing games, one, I did not expect that today, but I am pleased to hear that. Because um, the geek, not the geek ending, that's the show on currently. Uh, All Ages of Geek um, has its own D and D podcast. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, an awful lot of what eventually became this series did start off in a tabletop D and D game. Nice. So, um, and oh, oh, just saying, I uh, I don't restrict myself to D and D, but right, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't restrict myself to uh games either like i have a few main ones and i got one that i would love to play sometime which is basically fantasy sci-fi in space are are are, are you talking about fading suns uh no i am talking about a recently like very indie one called veil of the void okay and it's really cool really great like the book is good thick and it like has its own world, the different planets you can go to, different classes, whole thing. Right. But I'll have to look for that. I'll have to look it, for that. Yeah. Uh, Veil of the Void Reforged. That's okay. what you want to look for. And um, in uh, Dicesh, that's the D&D podcast, I actually am in it. And I created my own subversive character as well. And basically right now, the setting is in Theros, which is a very ancient Greek-based uh, right. D&D setting. And I chose uh, what race my character would be. I wanted him to be a Minotaur. And you see Minotaur as like these big, beefy, hulking, scary things. Which, yeah, he can't be uh, scary, but he's a doctor. <laughs> he is very people-first, and he honestly forgets that people see him as terrifying. <laughs> But he has a heart of gold. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, you know, uh, I think given the the resurgence and popularity of D and D in particular, but tabletop role playing games in general, people forget that uh, it's been around for a while at this point. It has. Yeah. Like, originally, they started out as war games. Uh, yeah, miniatures games. Yeah, miniature ga games. Uh, 
now we have tabletop games that cover like the world of HP Lovecraft with Call of Cthulhu and which one thing I have heard people say about that game is like yeah you can create a character but do expect them to die Call of Cthulhu is brutal it's pretty much the only game system I've ever played where having a high perception roll works against you yeah because congratulations you see a zombie that's not natural madness (laughs) yeah yeah I've um, never played it personally. I'd like to someday. someday. Oh, oh, I've I've played it. Yeah, no, I've definitely played it. Um, I uh, I'm very amused to note. Uh, I learned not that long ago that apparently it is the uh, the highest uh, selling game in Japan. Oh wow! So Chaosium's number one market is Japan. Um, which uh, particularly amongst uh, young women. Another thing I'm surprised by. Absolutely was shocked. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So what other places would you say you got influenced by? Because everyone gets influenced by something when creating another oh, thing. And, and gets influenced by tons of things. Um, you know, I, I defy anyone to tell me that they were just influenced by one thing. Um, I, you know, I have been influenced by um, my own experiences. I've been influenced by my rather odd family life. I've been uh, influenced by, um, besides tabletop role-playing games, uh, mythology and um, various cultures around the world, my own love of religions. and I mean, you know, uh, perhaps obviously, although perhaps not, an awful lot of fantasy. Right. Uh, just just an awful lot of fantasy stories. Um, you know, uh, anything from um, Fred Soberhagen's books to um, uh, Robert Jordan um, to David Eddings, um, just, just a lot of like the uh, more famous epic fantasy tales yeah. i mean maybe less so tolkien but he's probably in there a little bit anyway because you can't avoid tolkien no you can't but what mythologies would you say is your favorite to just sit down and read about oh um hmm. i do not have a favorite mm. um i um I mean, I, I love, um, I love, uh, well, I'm not going to call it a mythology because it's an active religion. Um, I, I am very fond of Ifa, but like I said, active religion, not mythology. Um, yeah. Um, you know, uh, Sumerian and Babylonian mythology, um, a lot of, uh, the various, um, mythologies of Europe and Greece and um, I just you know like uh, a lot of Asian mythologies um, you know uh, again not going to call them mythology because active religion but um, a lot of Hindu stories are really really fascinating stuff yeah I know currently in my large collection of books that I am disappointed to say I have not read half of them because I'm just like, ooh, buy a new book. Ooh, buy a new book. Because <laughs> reading a book and buying a book is two different things, unfortunately. Yeah, those those are me. two different hobbies. Those are two yeah, different exactly. hobbies. Exactly. <laughs> but I have this like, good, thick book of Norse mythology that I can't wait to get into when I find time. <laughs> yep. No, Norse mythology is great. Again, active religion, although there is... I mean, with a great many of these, um, part of yeah. the issue and one of the things that gets lost is this idea that um, that these stories have shifted often dramatically depending on place and uh, time. So, you know, um, stories about deities are a very fluid thing um, and they kind of always have been, you know, it's like... Yeah. With, uh, with Egyptian stories, uh, who was the god or goddess that created the universe often 
very much hinged on which village or town you were asking that question in. Yeah, and I think an aspect we forget is a lot of it was oratory, just spoken word. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, Egyptians were very proud of their writing skills, but, um, right. you know, definitely um, all mythologies, um, you know, when you really, really get down to it, um, what we present as canonical often is entirely dependent on what we've uncovered in mm -hmm. archaeology. And often that is very specific. You know, um, a lot of our stories uh, about the Enuma Elish are because of where we found the records that we pieced together. You know, there's there may have been, well, not may have been, almost certainly were versions of those tales that had different emphasis um may have even been dramatically different right and one thing i do love about those old stories that get passed down is like to this day some of them are still great like the epic of beowulf that is honestly a story i could just sit down and read every time even though i know what it's going to happen because beowulf was just larger than life have you read the most recent translation uh, no, I have not. Last time I read it, I was in, was it junior year of high school? But I, I know Beowulf is one of my favorites. Uh, it, it's a, it's definitely a favorite of mine as well. Um, there was recently a, uh, translation of it that was made by, um, Maria Devana Headley, um, Ooh. that I highly recommend, um, amongst other things. And I, um, because uh, there are words that have been translated traditionally in Beowulf that have been translated very oddly. Um, and by oddly, I mean with extreme bias. Uh, you know, in particular, there's, there is one word that, um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, uh, agleka, I think is how it's pronounced, um, that means... Um, it, it doesn't translate cleanly into English, but it means uh, uh, sort of awe-inspiring, terrifying, fierce. Um, it's it's a word that um, that is usually translated as like fierce or as you know mighty when it is used to describe Beowulf, and it's translated as monster when it's used to describe Grendel's mother. Mm. Same word exactly the same word in point of fact there is no language in beowulf that specifically says that grendel's mother is anything but a human that's true but Never thought about that but it has been translated um by well victorian scholars uh, and also looking at you tolkien <laughs> um in a way that doesn't actually support the language. It's it's like the uh, the also recent translation of um, of the Odyssey, mm. where um, that was some of the language that is used is maybe translated in ways that um, are overly complementary uh, of Odysseus um, for things that maybe we shouldn't be complimenting him for. Um, you know, in particular, the um, the the fact that the uh, the women that he kills when he returns um, that are entertaining, being forced to entertain his guests, uh, typically get described and translated as um, as whores or prostitutes. And uh, no, no, they're they're slaves. So um, yeah. It's uh, language translation for mythologies yeah. is a really, really interesting field. And it's particularly interesting because there is no such thing as a pure translation. Right. Of anything. You know, you're you're always going to be um, trying to avoid personal bias, but it's not very likely to happen. But but Beowulf is is uh, I love Beowulf for, for many reasons. Um, I think a lot of people 
okay, Tolkien nerds are aware, other people may not be aware of how much um, orcs owe to Beowulf. Mm -hmm. Because um, because of uh, the, the tribe of Orcus that gets mentioned in Beowulf um, and uh, how much Tolkien may have pulled from that to create his monsters. Yeah. And I think when it comes to the epic of Beowulf, it is a near perfect three-part story. It has its beginning, its middle, and then its end. You know? I mean, sure. Sure. Uh, I think that the three-act story is um, a thing that works really, really well for a certain kind of story. Right. You know, it works really, really well for, say, movies. Um, it works really, really well for um, TV shows. Um, it works okay in books. There's certainly nothing wrong with it. Uh, I notably paid no attention to it in what I was writing because it didn't serve me. Makes sense. Makes sense. But another thing I do like about uh, Greek mythology stories is that there sometimes is no clear perfect good guy. Everyone has some blood on their hands. Sure, sure. I mean, they share that with a you know, quite honestly, um, when I think about it, like I'm trying, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to think of um, mythologies where that's not true to some extent, right? Like, so um, I, I, there are some out there, but certainly like Norse, there's huge problems with <laughs> with some of the behaviors that are, uh, that are uh, described. Um, right. You know, uh, a lot of um, a lot of African uh, mythologies depict very relatable human um, seeming or human acting divinities. Um, you know, uh, Egyptian. I mean, it it depends. Egyptians, everything depends yeah. on where you look. But uh, no, no. I, I mean, I like that about I like that about Greece, Greek mythologies too. I think the the biggest thing that always, like the biggest eye opening moment for me when from kid to adult was realizing that I had been presented with this neat book of you know sort of bullfinches mythologies and told these are the Greek myths and realizing that why no, no they're not. Um, these are one set of Greek myths and. There right. is no, yeah. You wanna you wanna go over here. They're gonna have very different stories of say Artemis than if you if you go over here and talk about uh, you know her uh, someplace else. So right, like since you brought it up, like one great big difference with Artemis sometimes is her relationship with Orion, either someone she loved or someone she highly respected or someone who doesn't even come into the story at all. Right. You know, uh, depending on if she is, what she's being depicted as, is she the mother of animals or is she, um, is she a virgin huntress? Um, you know, I mean, we can, we can get into, another one that I love to pick on is Athena um, because, you know, her probable adoption by the Greeks she seems very appropriated um, from another probably African religion um, is really interesting. You know, that that transition from what may well have been uh, an Egyptian goddess to this um, virginal and frankly misogynistic Greek deity. Um, fascinating. And I also like how much it has impacted our, like, figures of speech. Because, you know, flying too close to the sun, that's Icarus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's, a, it's a good 
uh, although difficult thing uh, as a writer to mm-hmm. um, to deal with because so much of our um, speech are peppered with these very specific contextual anecdotal you know uh, phrases and, and sayings and when it comes time to write something that say second world you often have to be like okay well this is this is a figure of speech that literally can't exist because right. there is no Icarus <laughs> there is no you know various uh figures that your your phrases might be based on it's a it's an interesting challenge so what would you say is your favorite thing about the writing process finishing (laughs) um i'm kind of not joking like there's a huge sense of satisfaction (laughs) no i bet the end um I mean, yeah, there's there's different stages um, through the process that are wonderful. And there's different stages through it that are hell. Um, I think there isn't a writer in existence that has ever enjoyed being blocked and not knowing what to do next. Um, yeah. that, you know, that's, that's the worst. Um, mm-hmm. uh, on the other hand, that light bulb moment when you know exactly what you're doing is uh better than any drugs let me tell you yeah as someone who has kind of just stopped writing a little collection of made-up short stories i get that (laughs) because like when i was writing these short stories one thing i really got influenced by was ghost stories like stories you know you tell in the dark I grew up on Goosebumps by R.L. Stein, for heaven's sake. But at one time, I just stopped writing because I didn't think my work was good enough. I was like, ah, this will never get published. And I just stopped. I mean, this is going to sound mean. Don't take this away. Don't, don't, don't take this as mean. Your work may not have been good enough. Yeah. But that doesn't matter because the only way forward is through you know like you have to keep writing um and um that's that's the only way you get better at it is you just keep doing it and um we all plateau right like there there will be moments in everyone and this is so i used to be i was an illustrator prior to making the transition to being uh, a writer and um there is a very similar process here in this idea that you will get to a point where all of your work sucks and you know all of your work sucks but you don't know what to do about it you can't you you don't know how to fix it and uh and that is a very frustrating moment that's a moment where it's really really easy to want to quit and um but the the trick of it is is that moment almost always precedes you to to use video game terminology leveling up yeah um and and then you you get better and you you keep going um but but yeah it's it's always that like everything's terrible i'm terrible this is not gonna work uh why am i even doing this um and you just have to keep going yeah and with my writings i haven't done as much creative writing but for all ages of geek, I have counted recently and been astonished. I've uh, written over 55 articles for the website in the two yeah. years I've been doing stuff for them. And each of them gets a little bit better, even though ironically, um, my very first article I ever wrote for them, I considered to be my magnum opus when it comes to analysis and research. Right. Do, do you still think that? Um, yes, because of all the elbow grease that went into this article. Because... That's, 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 a, that's effort versus output. It's not the same thing. Right. You know, like... I probably put 30 years off and on worth of work into the first book. I don't necessarily think that that is my best. That's just the one I put the most work into. 
perhaps I phrased it wrong. It is my best analytical work. Okay. Fair I've enough. done like other journalism style articles. Right. But for the first one, I looked at like this web series and like they get heavy influence from other works. Right. And I this uh, and like they have these creatures called Grimm, which of course named after the brothers Grimm. And I just said, you know what? Here's the cultural background of every single Grimm at the time. Over 3,000 words, up to my eyes in notes. And it was done. Sure. And when I submitted it, I just had this sigh of relief of, yes, it is complete. Well, I completely relate to that. Um, you know, knowing that uh, the... So five books, um, each book was at least 200,000 words. Um, and that's not counting the stuff that didn't make it into the book that got edited out or, or cut for various reasons. So probably 1.5 million words written. Um, yeah, uh, being done with that was, yeah, that was a feeling of, of of accomplishment. Um, oh, and a release schedule that was every 10 months. Oh, jeez. So, this is just out of my curiosity. Sure. With your booksies, have you ever killed off a character? Oh my god. I'm infamous. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, had, I've had people write more than a couple of times be like, if you kill off this character, I am going to be so mad at you because, oh yeah, I kill off people all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know why, but hearing that makes me laugh because um, in one like uh, little tabletop role playing, to bring it back to tabletop role-playing games, um, I had a character betray the group. He was an NPC, and everyone got furious at this one oh, yeah. made-up character. Because yeah. they were their friend. They were sure. their ally. Sure, of course they would. Of course they would. Yeah. Although, you want to really get a PC team upset at you? Here's the trick of it. There's, there's two different ways. They'll both work. One, mess with their property. Mess with any of their stuff. Two, mess with their house. What, whatever it is, if they have a base of operations and you mess with that, you have a villain mess with that, they will hunt that person forever. Oh, how do you think the villain betrayed them? They burned down the there base. There you go. Oh, there, there you go. There you go. So see, it wasn't just the betrayal. It was the betrayal plus the the you messed with the safe place yeah um yeah absolutely um but uh uh I, yeah no so okay so like i said uh part of the story was definitely influenced by D D, and part of what i was playing with was this idea of um the power dynamics of societies where um people can be raised from the dead. Ooh. So um, in a couple of cases, I've killed them and they don't stay dead. But I have definitely killed off characters where it's like, I'm sorry that this was one of your favorites because um, this happens. Um, yeah, I absolutely had people that were very, People have been very upset at me for killing off different characters or doing things like that. Um, yeah, more than once and in more than one book. <laughs> so how would you say is the proper way to write a character death? Okay. So, um, I don't like to tell people what they should or shouldn't do when it comes to the writing process because my skills are not their skills and vice versa. Um, and you know what I can't pull off. It's very tempting as a writer to say, well, I've never been able to do X. Therefore you should never do X. And the truth of the matter is you might be able to pull off X brilliantly. How would I know? Um, you know, it's, it's very much a don't do X unless it works. 
then go ahead and do X. Um, personally, um, I like the deaths to make sense. And um, I like them to be uh, non-trivialized. Um, but that said, I have had characters effectively walk into a room and just start killing people. So I've also had very heroic deaths and I've had, um, you know, I've had a, a wide range of how people die. Um, you know, uh, I don't know that I've actually had like in bed of old age, um, they've all tended to be violent deaths, but, um, but it's that kind of story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's, there's, there's no one way to kill off characters right. in a novel. Um, yeah, I think that uh, you definitely should be careful. You know, it, it, it's probably not a thing to do, um, sort of put some thought into it. Right. If you're going to kill off a character, but uh, yeah, um, I, I can't think of a don't don't ever do X. I know as a reader, there is one type of character death that I I don't care who writes it. If they write it well, it gets me crying every time. And that is the when the character is going into a fight, they know they're going to lose. Right. Right. And because yeah. they don't give up, they keep trying, even though it is inevitable. Right. Yeah. And and the fact, so, I mean, you know, we're telling stories, we're telling stories typically to uh, get emotions, to, um, to inspire readers, to help readers feel things. You know, these are very much um, about engendering emotional responses in readers and uh crying is a valid emotional response so can you tell me about the book you're currently working on yeah so um i'm currently working on uh another book with dragons because i am who i am <laughs> um it's it's not set in the same world as the series that i just finished and um i i've kind of been describing it as um sort of uh Dragon Riders of Pern meets uh, the usual suspects by way of The Hobbit. So you you have a society that has these dragons, there are dragon riders, and there's kind of a high story happening in the middle of this um, where, where people are getting pulled into it, uh, particularly the main characters being pulled into it to rob a dragon sword. Um, and uh, is not necessarily being pulled into it willingly. Because <clears throat> robbing from a dragon is kind of a suicidal thing to do. You had me at dragon heist. <laughs> Just the idea of, yeah, ironically, let's steal from a dragon. Ironically, I have not played that module. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh yeah, well, yeah, I haven't played uh, Wild Deep Dragon Heist either. Yep, I have not played it. I probably, that's probably good. That's probably good. Yeah, it's, you know. I hear it's like one of the big three. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. But just like in general, being able to say, no, I have no experience with X thing. So if you accuse me of ripping something off, there's no way that's possible. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned The Hobbit because, you know, we're going to recruit Bilbo to steal something from Smog. Um, you know, it's it's that kind of group of people um, and the odd one out <laughs> who's, right. who's being dragged along into adventure. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, no, no experience with the D&D module. <laughs> In writing, sometimes, obviously in writing, like, you can't avoid tropes. But oh. what would you say is your favorite trope? If you do have a favorite. 
I mean, there's a lot of tropes that are really, really cool. I'm very fond of Xanatos Chessmasters. I'm very fond of Xanatos Chessmasters. Uh, could you explain that? Okay, trope? sure. So, so the Xanatos Chessmaster doesn't have to be a villain, usually is a villain, is that person who is um, so smart that they have planned things out multiple moves in advance as though um, they have foreseen all of this. Uh, so they are just a hyper smart, hyper competent person who um, isn't going to make mistakes very often, if at all. And I, I like I like my villains hyper smart. So um, it, uh, yeah, uh, I'm very fond of Xanatos Chessmasters. Um, I'm also very fond, oh, there's a lot of tropes. Tropes, everybody, I, I think it's become a thing to kind of brag on this idea of tropes in writing, but tropes are everywhere. And they, when you talk about mythology, when you talk about storytelling from the very beginning of us telling stories, um, tropes come into it. So um, it's, it's just a thing that usually happens because they are not easy necessarily, but um, almost universal truths, you know, things that uh, can do happen again and again and again. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't take any um, like, oh, no, I don't use tropes in my writing. Uh, I'm perfectly willing to label a trope when I see it. Um, yeah. Uh, as soon as we stop talking, I'll, I'll think of 15 <laughs> <laughs> different examples. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I, I definitely like smart villains. And I, I love I love villains that um, really, really are committed to the idea they're not villains. You know, I, I, I really like villains who um, are doing the right thing in the worst way. You know, um, the main villain in the series I just finished, he is trying to save the world. He, he literally is. He, he believes that what he is doing is the only way that with 100% certainty will ensure that the human race endures. And if he has to kill 99% of the human race in order to make that happen, he is willing to go there. Well, I feel like things went to zero to 100 real fast with that character. Uh I, you know, he, he's been planning things for a while. He, ah. He's an immortal. It's fine. Um, and, you know, yeah. But, but just this idea of um, the, I mean, I don't think everybody, there's a saying in writing, you know, that everybody thinks that they're the hero of their own story. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's always true. I think there are definitely people out there who take great pleasure in not being the hero. Um, that embrace it and um, think that anybody who goes for heroism is an idiot and a fool. So, so I don't think that is always true, but I think it's true a lot, you know, that people that are doing bad things talk themselves into why that bad thing is acceptable. Right. And... I don't like hearing all these tropes that we're talking about. Again, I love tropes. I'm a big fan of tropes. My favorite trope in the world has to be the big guy. <laughs> you know, the sidekick that can handle the minions while the heroes take on the big bad. Okay. That yeah, is no. a very blunt version of the big guy trope. Right. Uh, but with the chess master and the villain who's doing bad and relishing in the bad of doing. I'm just sitting here like, yeah, I'm using that in one of my games. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, tropes are not always like, so uh, tropes are 
uh, a great shorthand for um, specific kinds of plots and plot ideas and interactions and stories. And um, certainly there are, some people like to call them cliches. Um, again, I don't always think that's true. Um, it, it really depends on what you're doing with them and how you're doing it. Um, you know, personally, uh, I tend to roll my eyes really, really hard um, anytime I see somebody, uh, you know, doing the I'm going to fridge the girlfriend um, or anytime I see uh, a man's motivation being only harm to their significant other or a woman's motivation being only um, children or their own rape. That happens way too often. Um, I, I could I could go the rest of my life and not see those two those three come up again. That'd be yeah, funny. I I have to agree. Um, that's why if I ever do kill off characters, which in the future, yeah, I will. Sorry if any of my players are hearing this. Uh, but yeah, they're gonna die with a purpose. I'm, I'm never right. gonna fridge anyone. Like yeah. that is the worst you can do. That's a disservice to the character you created. Sure. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, I uh, there actually is in in my series <clears throat> there was a character who um, I realized I was about to do it. I was about to fridge um, a character's wife in order to further his story. Um, it's a really easy trap to fall into, uh, and so I pulled that back and I ended up um, I did kill her but I turned her into undead and I kept her in the story <laughs> and uh, she she became one of my favorite characters and she yeah she she's running around causing havoc the entire way through yeah here's a question that I thought of off the top of my head fortunately I'm good at that um <laughs> What was it like realizing that you had fans? Oh, oh wow, that was such a weird feeling. It still is a weird feeling. It's still a super weird feeling, because um, you know, like I'm used to being the fan, not being the one who has fans. <laughs> and um, you know, every time somebody has come up to me at a convention or something and said, "You're my favorite writer." I just want to turn around and look for who they're actually talking to because, um, you know, it can't be me, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not used to it yet. Um, yeah. it, it is a great feeling, not gonna mm -hmm. lie. It is it is a legitimately great, great feeling, um, but it is also a highly weird feeling. Yeah, like with our, again, <laughs> It's funny how we're just slowly bringing things back to tabletop role-playing games. Sure. Uh, but this is what happens when an interview is being conducted by a nerd to a fellow nerd. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. But, like, when I hear people who have listened to the D&D podcast, like, oh, I'm a fan, I love this character, and it's a character that I play, I'm just like, like, almost every time it makes me want to cry... <laughs> Because I'm not used to that. Like, I don't get the praise. Right. Yeah. No, you, you're, you're not used to hearing it. And yeah, it's it's just, it's such a, it's such a weird feeling. Um, agreed. It's not like you're on the stage or something where you get the immediate applause and the feedback, right? right? You know, like uh, for, for book sales, I don't know how it goes for, for podcast. I imagine for podcasts, you get numbers pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, our bosses uh, like to update us if something goes good, right. like a week. Right. Yeah. After. You know, for writing traditional trad publishing, you know, um, it may be six months before I get sales numbers back. So pretty much the only feedback I am going to get is going to be people responding to me on social media um, or coming up to me at an event. 
I, I have had people write me letters. Um, and that's, that's always super weird. Um, cause <laughs> nobody does that anymore. Um, but, uh, but lovely, you know, yeah. just really, really appreciated. Um, it's, uh, and you always, you know, imposter syndrome is a real thing. Oh so, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, there's always this thing whenever you release a book of is this going to be the book where everyone realizes that i'm a huge fraud um that, that oh wait no i decided i didn't actually like her writing after all um so i'm very very happy that so far all of the feedback i've gotten for the fifth book has been overwhelmingly positive and, and i'm very very grateful for that because uh you know it was really important that i stick the landing so to speak yeah you know, um when i when i started the first book when when the first book was announced um and uh i remember all of these people who responded to it with well i don't start series when they first begin because i've been burned too many times oh and um and of course my my knee-jerk response to that is and that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you know a series is not a guaranteed thing it's it's like waiting until a tv series is finished before you start watching it yeah um you know there's a there's a certain amount of like herd immunity that happens you're counting on the fact that enough other people are also going to be watching it that it won't get canceled yeah if nobody does if nobody buys the book um then congratulations there won't be a book two three four five um so you know to a certain extent like if i get it yeah and we all know who the authors are who haven't finished their stuff but <laughs> at some point people have got to take a chance that yeah yeah this series will actually finish um so it, it does feel nice to kind of be able to go well here it is it's done um hey i i finished it um and the uh just uh that experience and feedback and and people telling me that they really were pleased with how i finished it um has meant everything so yeah and i definitely get that feeling because when i've had people say who have uh, talked to us about the podcast like oh i love your character i'm just sitting here like he is basically a combination of asclepius and dr jekyll and mr hyde how do you love that <laughs> but uh, oh oh yeah no i you know <clears throat> so uh in the very first book uh, I introduced this character. Um, <clears throat> so the the format of the first book is this uh, is this story that's being told um, between the main character and his jailer, and they're kind of telling this story back and forth um, through two different timelines. Um, and the his jailer is a monster. His jailer is um, is a shape changer who um, gains the memories of everyone whose brain she eats. You know, she's she, she's not what you would call like a good person, <laughs> to All put right. it mildly. Um, you know, she is uh, at kindest, you could call her a cannibal. Um, she's, she's kind of a Lovecraftian horror in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, not necessarily sane because she's got all these memories kind of forming contrasting conflicting personality shards that are fighting each right. other. Um, and, you know, people would tell me like, oh my God, she's my, Talon's my favorite character. And I was just like, um, really? <laughs> she's really, <laughs> she's kind of um, terrible, like objectively terrible. And they'd be like, yeah, but she makes me laugh. Like, okay, okay, she's funny. Yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> and with my character, um, Toros, that's his name. 
I kind of abused the fact that medicine is classified as wisdom, not intelligence. So Tauros has an intelligence of five. He is dumb when it comes to like research and stuff like that. But somehow he's good with medicine. And uh, just like he says these philosophical things. And in the nutshell, they mean nothing most of the time. It's just him musing, trying to sound intelligent. And people are just like, no, no, it's, but it's coming from a good place. He loves his friends. He loves his family. That sounds very mystery, man. Um, the, the, uh, the one character that's always spouting out platitudes of trying to sound very wise and mysterious. Although, Fatoro, sometimes he is wise. He, a blind squirrel finds an acorn every once in a while. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, <laughs> so, so <clears throat> sounds like you're in a D and D game. Yep. Um, <clears throat> what are your What are your favorite besides D and D? What are your favorite games? Uh, oh. Systems. 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 Um, Veil, the, Veil of the Void has a really great system, where it is <clears throat> like I have actually interviewed the creator of Veil of the Void Reforged, and as he put it, it is brilliantly broken like you can have whatever you want and it will make sense like it seems overpowered but nothing really is overpowered when your enemies could be overpowered as well i mean <clears throat> it's um it's a scale right uh yeah as long as everybody's playing on the same level yeah exactly it's fine uh, that's a good one um I can't think of the systems off the top of my head. Fortunately, I have a file on my computer that's just titled Tabletop Role-Playing Games. Sure. Uh, What other ones do I have? Um, Pathfinder is really cool. Okay. It's a a D&D. I know know what Pathfinder is. Nice. Um, And there is this really good one coming yeah, Inspires. That's what it's called. I think it's not out fully yet, and it's just being playtested. Right. But it's a role-playing game that teaches American Sign Language. What did you say the name of that game was? Inspires. Inspires. Okay. Excuse me for a moment while I write that down. Actually, fortunately, Zoom has a... uh, chat function i was going to send it to you perfect because uh yeah that's uh on my list of things i really 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 want to learn how to do and like it's it's very um like the folklore of it is very um arthurian Okay. And I believe um, they said that one big um, module they wanted to come out was the you, the normal uh, PCs, players, going against Mordred. Okay. Uh, that sounds uh that combines two of my favorite things i mean if not american sign language is not one of my favorite things like i said it's just a skill i really really want to learn but i'm i'm very into the arthurian myths so uh, okay i that am sending fantastic. you i will keep an eye open for that i am sending you a link to the creator because it has inspires right in his thing find the chat little function i know up there it is and uh paste there we go it's that okay perfect thank you no problem um so do you have any last things to say to the listening audience um you know uh certainly uh obviously i'm going to encourage everyone to buy my book uh, <laughs> books you know um like i said uh 
it's the entirety is out, so it can definitely be binged. It is in uh, every, just about every format you could possibly want. Um, it, uh, although I'm going to say um, that despite the fact that I tend to read books on, um, tend to read as ebooks myself, doesn't always do the best ebook. Probably shouldn't be saying that, but because um, it, it it has footnotes. Ah. And um, uh, and it, not as a sort of I mean like as part of the story, it has footnotes. Um, and depending on the e-reader you're using, they don't always gracefully deal with footnotes. So um, I've discovered that it is definitely uh, a series that is better consumed as either a physical copy or as the audiobook. Um, you know, on the other hand, it is like a each of those things is like a twenty-seven hour audiobook, so it is a good value, you know, yeah. from from that sort of thing. Uh, anyway, I can be found on Twitter at Jen uh, uh, Lyons Author. Um, I'm on Instagram as Jen Lyons and Tigers. My website is jenlyons.com. Um, I have a Facebook page. Search for Jen Lyons, uh, and um, that's that's pretty much it. All right. And to you, dear listeners, thank you for coming. Have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and most of all, have a good night. <laughs> <laughs>